Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. Clearly, the prophecy does apply to Egypt, just as clearly as it claims the Lord is about to come. Is he going to show up physically? No, God didn't show up physically. He was there in spirit, yes. But his representative at the time was this king that came to destroy Egypt. Just like later on, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. God calls Titus and Vespasian his servant. The writer Josephus writes in his books that he believed God sent Titus and Vespasian as his instruments of judgment, as his servants, so to speak, to destroy Jerusalem and the temple as a judgment to the apostate Israel. Even though they were apostate because they didn't believe in Messiah, uh, Josephus believed they were apostate of the faith anyway. Anyway, so that he even recognizes that when he sees them. Now, there isn't a single Bible scholar or interpreter of, on the planet that the, believes that the Egyptians saw God Almighty sitting on a cloud descending on them in judgment. Now, go with me to Micah 1 verses 3 to 7. Micah 1, 3 to 7. It's interesting that they call these prophets the minor prophets. There's nothing minor about them at all. They're as powerful as you can imagine. They just have smaller books, so they call them minor prophets. Micah 1, verses 3 to 7. Listen to this. In fact, I'm going to start at verse 2. Hear, O people, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains. Let the Lord be a Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split like wax before the fire. The water poured out from a steep place. All of the rebellion of Jacob for all the sins of the house of Israel. What is this rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour out her stones down into the valley, and I will lay bare her foundations. All of her idols will be smashed. All of her earnings will be burnt with fire. All of her images I will make desolate, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings. To the earnings of the harlot they will return. Now here, remember, remember what it, how it started out. It says, hear all people, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains. Let the Lord be a witness against you. So is God speaking there? Is the prophet speaking to the entire earth, to the entire, all the people for all time? No. It just means, you know, I want the whole world to hear this. How many times have you heard somebody say that, right? When you have something to say, you know what? I want the whole world to hear this. Do we really mean the whole world's going to hear it? Well, now with Facebook and social media, perhaps they will, for better or for worse. Right? But technically, it's just a vision or a visual of what the writer's trying to convey. Right? Everything, everybody in that area is going to know 
from top to bottom, left to right, everybody in the world, anybody in that particular part of the world is going to know it. So we see the coming of the Lord in Micah in judgment against Samaria and Judah, and it has to do with the Babylonian conquest. Here, Micah is telling us that it isn't just another human kingdom coming to conquer another human kingdom due to human whims, pride, or thirst for power. But he lifts our view higher up to God's view, to be able to see from God's view the true spiritual significance of what we only see as human beings. The materialistic part, the worldly part, the political part. No, we are shown over and over again that it is God who uses any and all elements, worldly or spiritual, to accomplish his heavenly purposes and to bring judgment upon Samaria, Samaria and Judah for their rebellions and disobedience against him. As God says, on earth as it is in heaven. This is a foundational principle in our knowledge and understanding of the reality of God's sovereignty over everything in the created universe. Let's read a few scriptures just to kind of uh, hit the point, bring the point home. Starting at Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. Okay, Proverbs 16, verse 9. He says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. What does that mean? Does that mean that we can make a plan, but it doesn't matter because he's going to manipulate us to do what he wants? No. That's not what it means, but there's a subtle difference. What it means is you can make up your mind to do whatever you want and actually do it and naturally suffer the rewards or consequences for your actions. But guess what? When it's all said and done, God gets to use those actions one way or the other to further his will. So you can do what you, you, you are free to do whatever you want right here. You're free to do whatever you want, right? The mind of man plans his way. So you can plan it, perform it, accomplish it, whatever you want. But it says the Lord directs his steps, which basically means in the mind of the Jew, and in the philosophy of what's being taught here, that God ultimately is going to work that in to his plan the way he wants it to work. You can do what you want, but God gets to choose the final outcome of what happens as a result. I hope you understand that. The next one is Daniel 2 verses 20 to 21. Daniel 2 verses 20 to 21. The interesting thing about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar is that Nebuchadnezzar learns this lesson the hard way, truly the hard way, if you read his conversion in uh, Daniel chapter 7. But here in Daniel 2 verses 2, 20 to 21, it says, It is he, God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to, under, and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So you see, he's the one that ultimately decides where everything's going to land. Now, some people take that to mean, well, it's inevitable. There's nothing I can do about it. 
whatever happens in anywhere in America or in this country or in our life or in politics, whatever happens, happens. The presidents get elected. Presidents do not get elected. Okay, well, it's inevitable. We just got to, well, not quite. You can accept God's will, but that doesn't excuse you from still fighting for right and truth, fighting in this world as a kingdom of, uh, as, as a citizen of the kingdom. So while we can accept certain things and go on with our lives, we still must continue to fight the good fight of faith. We still must continue to live as citizens of the kingdom, follow the Sermon on the Mount to the letter as best we can by the power of the Holy Spirit, still fight for the things that are right, but not attack and fight amongst ourselves. Not try to ruin or destroy or tear down each other because that's not how God wants us to live. Okay, so there is on the part where you do accept the will of God for certain things. Just like Daniel had to. Daniel got kidnapped and, uh, you know, and taken away captive by Nebuchadnezzar and forced to live where he didn't want to live. Forced to do what he didn't want to do. Yet in that culture, in that situation, he still managed to obey, serve God, worship and praise him. And because of that, even in spite of the fact that he was under rulership he didn't like or he was in captivity, he wasn't free to do what he wanted to do, he still rose in the ranks and became, at some point, the second most powerful person in Babylon as a Christian. That's weird. That's not that he's a Christian, but he believed in God. He believed in Messiah. He is the one who taught the Magi, the wise men, to look for the sign when Jesus was going was gonna to be born. Okay, I firmly believe that. All those years later. But he managed to live a solid faith in God. In spite of the fact that he was under bondage, under captivity, under rulership he didn't want, under a leader they didn't want. All those things, it didn't matter to him. They tried to convert him. They tried to change him. They tried to make him go along to get along. He wouldn't have it. Then you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Same story. They were willing to die in the fire. Uh, is it that drastic? I don't know. I don't. I, I'm not a big conspiracy guy. Sometimes I get carried away. But this is just to say that yes, it is the Lord who ultimately fulfills His purpose. We have to make sure we're just doing what He says. We just got to make sure of that. Let's go to Daniel four seventeen. Four seventeen. It says. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows it upon whom he wishes, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. So again, reminding us that ultimately everything plays out according to God's plan. And what's his plan for our life? To uh, follow him and, and, and take him with us, Wherever, whatever decision we make, whatever plan we make, wherever we decide to go, as long as we take him with us, it's part of God's plan. When we leave him behind and do what we want to do, it's gonna, it's not, we're out of God's purpose and plan, even though it's still gonna work out. He's still gonna make it work out, just that you don't get to enjoy the blessings of being part of it. Finally, Romans 13 verses 1 to 2. Romans 13 verses 1 to 2. And then I'll open it up for questions. Well, after Ephesians, I'll open it up for questions. Listen to this. 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which are, exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed it will receive condemnation upon themselves. Right? What is he saying here? That we have to blindly obey? No. Even the apostle Peter, when he was confronted, he said, You decide whether we follow the rules of the laws of God or the laws of man. But... In so far as we are able to do, we are to live at peace. We are to obey the law. We are to do what we're supposed to do as, as good representatives and citizens of the kingdom, still fighting the good fight of faith. And finally, Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 9. If children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that you may be well, so that it may be well with you and that you may live a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord, not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slaves or free, and masters do the same thing to them, and give them give up threatening, knowing that both the master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. So again, the point being, God says, do these right things in spite of what's going on around you, in spite of the, world, the rest of the world falling apart, you're still, we are still obligated to live like this. And then he says, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So, again, God is in control. God is in charge. God is sovereign. But he's still going to give you the ability to make your own decisions. He just wants you to make the decisions based on his word, his truth, and what he says is right, not what you and I happen to think is right at the time. So, we were. I think we stopped at Ephesians verses 1 through 9. And we were making the point that the Bible says clearly from uh, Genesis through to Revelation that God is ultimately sovereign, right? He allows us to make our decisions, but every decision we make, he's going to use ultimately for his own purpose and will. Much like a computer, who can it can do a billion or trillion calculations, but it can't go past the limitations set by the programmer. God being the programmer, we be, us being the the program, we, we can do a trillion different things in a trillion different ways. It doesn't matter. It's all going to fit in ultimately to his program. Next, we are going to plainly see that our Lord himself, he places the time of his coming in the clouds within the lifetime of the people that were living in his day. Let's go to Matthew 16, Matthew 16, verse 28. Listen to this. It says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that's amazing. The last time somebody said that, it was back in Luke with Simeon. Simeon said, The Lord will not allow me to die until I see his salvation. Now Jesus is saying that there was people that he was talking to in the Mount of Olives, in the, in the Olivet Discourse. He was talking, the people he was talking to, and he says, 
There are some standing right here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we know one already. We know one, and that's the Apostle John. The Apostle John was there, and the Apostle John did not see death until he saw the coming of the Lord. And I say it was not the second coming of all time in history. It was the coming in the clouds and judgment against Jerusalem. If you go to Matthew 24, verse 30, look what it says here. It says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then there will be tribes, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, again, I believe the better word here is not earth, but land. The tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Okay, he tells us that, and I believe that means it's fulfilled in Revelation. In verse 34, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So all these things he just said before, just said before, are going to have to happen within the generation that he's talking to 40 years later. And I believe it's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened 40 years later. Let's take a look at another specific instance of this in Matthew 26, 64. Here, Jesus uses the judgment language against the high priest. In other words, here, let me, in fact, let me start at verse 57. Let's give it some context. It says, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, but though many false witnesses came forward, but later two came forward and said, This man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that is very powerful. In Jewish culture, when somebody adjures you that way or by the living God, you are required to answer. That was just the way that was ingrained in them. They had to answer, and Jesus respected that. And I'm glad he did. Look what he says. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you, you, high priest Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Really? 2,000 years later, he's going to see it? 3,000 years later, he's going to see that? I, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Now, here the Lord himself is using the language, speaking to the high priest and everyone around him saying, you shall see, you. The passage is very similar to Revelation 1.7. I see this as a reference to his judgment of Israel in AD 70, which our Lord speaks of in several places in Matthew, 24, Matthew 21, which again, we are going to take a very close look at later. And in uh, Matthew 22 verses 1 through 7. Uh, let's go ahead and read that one. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 7. Jesus spoke to them in parables. 
22 verses 1 through 7, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast to his, for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call on those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready to come to the wedding feast. So come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And they seized the slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Wow. That is, that's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. What does that mean? Again, what happened to Jerusalem? The city was set on fire. The murderers were destroyed. Who are the people that he sent his... First of all, let's start with this. Who are the slaves that are called out, that went out to call those to be invited to the wedding feast? Well, those who are preaching the gospel. The apostles, the uh, disciples, they're the slaves who uh, are to go out and call people to the wedding feast. Who are the people that they're trying to invite the, to the wedding feast? The nation of Israel. The entire nation of Israel. He sends out more slaves. He sends out more people. He tells them everything's ready. But they paid no attention to him. Okay, They were looking for a political Messiah, not a, not a savior of their souls, so to speak. So what happens? They pay no attention and they seize the slaves and mistreat them and kill them. Who mistreated the early followers of the Christian church, the apostles, the disciples, and everybody? Well, it was the unbelieving Jewish leadership. The Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they're the ones that sent Saul out to destroy and torture and kill Christians until they recounted their faith. So they mistreated and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed the murderers and set their city on fire. That is fulfilled in AD 70 in the book of Revelation. Okay. While we can disagree on the exact application of this particular verse, there's nothing in the scriptures that prohibits us to apply Revelation 1-7 in this localized, time-specific way. And that is the desolation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, I got 15 minutes left. Let's see if we can get through a little bit more before I close for the night, but I'll have you done before 8 o'clock. Now we get to the next verse, which tells us that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So this becomes the very next question. Who exactly will see him that is Jesus coming in the clouds, Jesus coming in judgment in this particular instance. Is it every tribe of all the nation of the entire earth? This is what we have been classically taught most of our lives. That somehow when Jesus returns, we will all see him in the sky all at the same time, all over the entire globe. I remember once hearing a preacher explain that with the advent of smart TVs, smartphones, iPads, etc., that the technology exists where we will see, we will be able to see his return. That is, the image of Jesus will hijack all social media, all media at once, and his image will be projected to all the ends of the earth. And I remember having dreams about that. I remember going outside, seeing Jesus suspended in midair and all hell breaking loose. 
So what does it really mean when John says, every eye shall see him? Well, it's simply this. When you read it in its basic form, trying to understand it the way the Jewish Christian and those Christians would have understood it then, it means that the Lord coming in the clouds will be a public event. It'll be a public event, not hidden in a corner or obscured from view for all, except for a chosen few, as we've been led to believe over and over again throughout the centuries. Remember when God was announcing the destruction of Samaria, what did he say? He says, all the people on the earth will see it. All the nations will hear me. Everybody's going to know about it. We had already established that he wasn't talking about the whole earth. He was talking specifically about Samaria and the, and the sin of Judah. So here is the same language in, used in the same way. There is no mystery here unless you try to impose upon it a meaning that you really can't get from the scriptures unless you read it so literally, which nobody does. I don't care how many people say, I take the revelation literally. You don't. Okay, we've already talked about that. But here, it's the idea that only, the idea that only a certain enlightened few have been given the insight as to how and when the Lord will return and then go out and write books go out and do talk shows and regale us with all their fanciful fairy tales predicting the rapture and the second coming of Jesus, which, as again, history has well attested, they have been wrong at least 100% of the time. Also, the Bible tends to use the words all and every in many situations that do not mean a worldwide global universality. Now, I'm going to make this final point and then we're going to close for the night. This is where I have to sincerely apologize to all my students throughout the years for all of my teaching because one of my most popular sayings has been, all means all, that's all all means. Um, if you've been in my class at any amount of time, you've heard me say that sometime. You've heard me say that. And I have come to realize that I was dead wrong on that assumption. For instance, I'm pretty sure the whole congregation of Israel, women, infant, children, the age and the infirm, did not go out to war in Joshua 22.12. In Joshua 22.12, it says, When the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. Did the whole congregation go? Did every person in Israel go? No, they didn't. Okay, but God's trying to say here, or the prophet's trying to say, hey, it was almost everybody. Everybody that could go went. Okay, but it wasn't everybody. That's like when we say, man, did you go to that concert? Yeah, man, everybody and their brother was there. Was everybody and their brother there? Probably not. Okay, who believes that rebellious Israel sinned, uh, sinned against God under every hill and under every green tree that's, that's in the area. Jeremiah 2.20. Jeremiah 2.20. It says, For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you will say, I will not serve. 
But you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you have laid down as a harlot. Well, that's a lot of work if they did it under every single hill and every single tree. Okay? So, <laughs> you got to take the language for what it is. Was there a census taken of the entire inhabited earth by a decree from Caesar Augustus in uh, Luke 2.1? If you go to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1, look at this. Now, in the days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. I'm sure Caesar would have loved to be able to tax the entire world. But we know that's not what happened. The inhabited earth, that's not what happened. He taxed his domain, right? Rome, which inhabited earth is going to mean the same thing in Revelation when it talks about covering the inhabited earth. Okay? So it's the same idea. Did literally all of Judea, Jerusalem, and all the district around the Jordan come and get baptized by John? Matthew 3, 5 to 6. If we take this as it, at its word, it says, Then Jerusalem, listen to this, Jerusalem the city was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, and they confessed their sins. So we could make a case that every single person, every last one of them got saved and got baptized. But we know that isn't the case. Okay, we know that isn't the case. Now, I'm going to make the case that in Revelation, it's talking about the same idea, but I don't have time to make the case now. So we're going to close it off right there. Let me mark it in my book. We're going to start again from this section on page four, and then we'll complete page four and five. Uh, and that, that's going to be in this lesson. So, all right. Any final thoughts, comments, or questions with what we studied so far? Hey Gil, I got a question. Okay. Hey Gil, so um, do we know if any of the teachers of the law, of the scribes, did any of them get baptized? Yes. Yes. It doesn't say it particularly, right? That that like Nicodemus, like Joseph of, of Arimathea, that gave Jesus his tomb when he died. That many, the Bible says, many, many, many followed him. But they could not make it publicly in front of the Sanhedrin for fear of their lives. So if they received Christ, it only makes sense that they would get baptized because that's the commandment. That's what he got, Jesus would expect them to do as believers. So secretly somewhere they did get themselves baptized. But does it say it that any of the Sanhedrin came and got particularly baptized? I don't remember that so much. The only time that it talks about the leadership showing up to be baptized was with the John the Baptist. But when but when John the Baptist saw them, he goes, "You brood of vipers, who warned you for to flee the wrath to come?" And who was the flee the who was the wrath coming upon the unbelieving Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and the hypocrites and the leaders of the Sanhedrin and and in, in, in the uh, in the temple, okay. But we do know for a fact that many of the Sanhedrin in leadership did get saved because, uh, and I don't remember the exact verse. I can look it up for you later, but 
they did get saved. And I think it only logically follows if they got saved, they too had to get baptized. Okay, thank you. Anybody else? Well, all right, beloved. I'll get you out of here at a decent time. Again, I'm very much appreciating your continual you know, attendance and coming and listening, giving me an opportunity to teach this. I love teaching it. Always, that's one of my hobbies is just studying Revelation, and I'm still doing it. I'm still studying the next chapters and the next chapters and all those other things, and I'm restudying it to make sure that when I come before you, I am as well prepared as I can be and I am as solid as I can be because I you know I take this very seriously. So it really makes me feel good that you guys are here listening, paying attention, asking thoughtful questions, and I really appreciate you. Let's pray and I'll get you guys out of here, okay? Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for your mercy and grace, Father. And I thank you so much for the richness and glory of your word that we, Lord, can take something in one part of the scripture and go throughout the rest of the scriptures and just confirm it, Lord, and see it for what it is. And for me, this experience in the book of Revelation has opened my eyes to more truth, has made the scriptures come alive and more focused. I no longer fear the mysteries. I'm not saying I know everything about Revelation, but I don't fear its mysteries anymore, Father. I am just looking forward to the, th for, to the day when you are going to return. But in the meantime, I am obligated, as well as all the Christians on this planet, is to be about our Father's business, to be caught with our hands at the plow, working, Lord, working, working, working. And part of that work, Lord, is to continue to try to make this world a better place for our fellow man. For the other view in futurism, the world has to get destroyed and has to get worse and has to, has to, has to get worse. And the worse it gets, the better for us Christians. Pastors and preachers, that's what they say. Have hope because the worse it gets, the better for us. We're going to get raptured. Lord, it's not the truth. The truth is you want us to fight to make this a better place for, the, for our fellow neighbor, for our communities, for our culture, for our land, for our people, for the world as best we can until the day you return. And the day you return is going to be a mystery. It's just, you're just going to show up and we'll, you'll be a pleasant surprise for us, a horrific surprise for the rest of the world. So help us to be those people that are still infiltrating society, still trying to make a difference, still feeding those that need to be fed, clothing those that need to be clothed, defending those that need to be defending, fighting for those that need fighting for. Father, do not let us give up this fight too soon, too quickly. Do not let us humble in, to huddle in our pews and hide in our churches waiting for the day when you're going to magically show up and take us away. But no, let us be caught doing your work. Let us be caught about our Father's business. Let us make one more person's life a little bit better on this earth and bring a blessing. And perhaps, just maybe, we can share that gospel with them, Father, and they, they don't have to just worry about making it better on this earth, but they can have heaven for eternity, Lord, as opposed to the alternative. Help mm -hmm. us to be those kind of Christians, Father, that are not done fighting until you, the boss shows up and tells us we're done. Mm -hmm. Praise be to your name, Lord. Thank you for what you give us throughout this holiday season, especially, Father, when expectancy is high and the supernatural feeling that things can get better during the holidays is not an it's not an accident lord you did that for a reason you've given us a reprieve you've given us a sense of hope that the next year is going to be better that the next month is going to be better but we can only have it through you lord help us remember that 
We praise you and thank you for everything you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes Lesson 9, Part 2 of Behold, He is Coming in the Clouds. Please join us for Part 3 in the next podcast. Thank you and God bless you, saints.